From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Longer school days, fewer days off, and summer school. Denver's new superintendent says they're all possibilities if students must catch up because of the pandemic. But first, he says, DPS must figure out how far they've fallen behind. Unfortunately, we do not have a true pulse. We do have data, but I'm not going to consider it valid data for a lot of reasons in terms of the testing conditions. So what we're going to do upon our entry, making sure that our students are safe, secure immediately, we have to really take a pulse on where our students are. So he says a test is coming, one that parents and students should embrace, not fear. Alex Marrero also addresses your questions about masks and vaccines in classrooms. Later, the Broncos start training as questions loom about leadership and ownership. Donate your car to Colorado Public Radio today. Any make, any model, we'll take it. If it's a lemon, we'll turn it into lemonade. If it's taking up space, we'll get it off your lawn. If it's a car you love, we'll turn it into the programs you love. Find answers to FAQs and start the safe and easy car donation process right now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The first day of school is just around the corner. It's August 23rd for the state's largest district, Denver. And DPS has a new superintendent. Alex Marrero arrived earlier this month and already finds himself with a full schedule of subjects. The pandemic and academic performance chief among them. Superintendent, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with COVID-19 and the Delta variant. The CDC recommending now everyone at school, regardless of vaccination status, mask up. Now, before that announcement, a neighboring district, Aurora Public Schools, also quite sizable, they announced last week that they'll require unvaccinated staff to wear masks and strongly is recommending them for unvaccinated students. Of course, we know that's anyone basically under 12. Masks certainly came up when we asked listeners for questions. My name is Alan Cogill. I live in Denver. And my question for Dr. Marrero is if DPS will follow the guidance of the American Academy of Pediatrics to have universal masking for everyone age two plus, regardless of vaccination status. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics is kind of considered the gold standard by a lot of parents to keep kids healthy. So I was curious about that. Would you? Yes, would you love me to respond? Yeah, you hear his daughter in the background there, Superintendent. Yes. They were on a hike. I'll just say that the AAP indeed recommends, quote, that all staff and students who are two or older wear face masks unless they can't for medical reasons. Uh, so what is DPS's approach? But we're still in deep deliberation, Ryan, for several reasons, right? Because of the new guidance, also the neighboring districts, as you mentioned, some who've made decisions, others who are struggling. I predict that by the end of this week, we'll take a stance and make an announcement. Just so we're clear, just as we heard from that caller who was advocating for universal masking, in my inbox and as I stroll the streets, I'm hearing equal amount. So it's 50-50 split of those who are saying that masks need to go away and everything that they're justifying for their why. 
So it's a very difficult position, and our doctors have been incredibly supportive in terms of what we have done thus far. I want to honor that commitment, but also it's difficult when you have folks who you are servicing, i.e. students and parents, who may want something different. But why wouldn't you just default to what the group of pediatricians nationally is saying? Why would there be any reason to do other than what child health experts say? Well, because of the feedback, right? So we're community leaders, right? So if uh, the community is wanting something different, then I think we have to at least uh, discuss that. So it's not as if we're not going to default that way. It's uh, probable, but to be determined. I know that in a neighboring district, there is, I'm not going to say a threat, but I guess the public health uh, order from their public health office is uh, going to actually not mention masks as a requirement. They're going to say that it's uh, recommended, but they're going to go down the lane of quarantine procedures. So that is what we're grappling with. It's not just the mask. What happens as a result of those who are unmasked or who are masked in terms of what we're going to do with everything that is social distancing and also quarantine? So it's just worth a discussion as opposed to just default, because I think that will be uh, a tremendous uh, disrespect for those who have advocated for us not to mask, and those of our parents and our students. So I just want to be clear, you're leaving room for politics, not just science, correct? Well, I think uh, it's not politics. I'm, I'm leaving room for the voices of those that we serve. Will kids be able to learn remotely? if families are uncomfortable with in-person learning at any point? Yes, regardless of what the decision is, uh, we have that option in DPS. So we have a virtual academy that exists. It's actually not tremendously enrolled, meaning there hasn't been a a large demand for a continuation of online remote learning. But that is an option that was decided before my arrival, and uh, it's growing slowly. Overwhelmingly, uh, students have requested to be in-person. But to your point, If there is a decision that's unfavorable for a certain household, they always have the option to enroll in our virtual academy. And can they do so flexibly throughout the year or do they have to make that call by a date certain? So we would love for it to happen before the school starts. Uh, We'll always allow them to enter throughout the school year. But we want to avoid the in and out for the sake of just programming for the receiving school, which would be their home school where they're enrolled. Are you measuring air circulation and carbon dioxide levels in schools? So I don't have that in front of me, but I know that our operations team has been monitoring that tremendously. Uh, So I'm going to say yes, they have. In addition to that, they're also using our capital bond to make sure that we upgrade those sites that need any upgrades. The pandemic forced students into remote learning for much of last school year with mixed opinions on how effective it was. According to a survey of about 500 Denver families conducted by Transform Education Now, this is a Denver nonprofit, about half of people believe their child has fallen behind academically. And about half say they don't think their kids were prepared to advance to the next grade. Uh, Here are some questions from Nicholas Martinez, TEN's co-founder and executive director. How would you measure how far behind students have have maybe fallen as a result of the pandemic? And how would you measure how successful the district is in catching them up? And what are the programs and scaffolding that you are planning to implement in order to ensure that all students are successful? Let's break those up. What does DPS data show about how far students fell behind last year, Superintendent? Great question. Same question that I asked upon my entry here. 
And unfortunately, we do not have a true pulse. We do have data, but I'm not going to consider it valid data for a lot of reasons in terms of the testing conditions, everything that goes along with testing sophistication. Uh, so what we're going to do upon our entry, making sure that our students are safe, secure immediately, we have to really take a pulse on where our students are. And that's going to come via uh, interim assessment that was designed in-house. So they'll take that. The students will take that early yep. on in the school year? Ryan, yes. And I need you, your support, everybody who's listening. Uh, this is not uh, an opportunity for folks to exercise their right, which is to opt out of any assessment. This is an opportunity for us to inform you as a parent and our students. So that's my plug to say, please sit for the exam. It's internal. It's only going to be shared with you, our practitioners, and making sure that we have a pulse so we can know what course of action, individual planning needs to happen for each scholar. This doesn't go so no, on. No opt-out, please, Ryan, please. I want you to say it for me. No opt-out to your listeners. Well, that's not my role, but uh, I'll <laughs> let you say it. Uh, but what I hear you saying is this is not something that goes on to some transcript or that a college would look at or something like that. That's absolutely correct. And I want to respect everybody's uh, decision and choice. But in this uh, rendition of our assessments, it's critical. So we can answer that question whenever a parent asks publicly, but more importantly, so we can inform you as a parent and as, as a student. And then our teachers can really design a program so we can just catch any student up or also push those who have excelled. At the same right, I know that some self-reliant learners have really excelled during this pandemic because that's how they learn best. And these will be in multiple subjects, presumably. Of course. Yeah. Right. Of course, the uh, no, literacy and math being the one-two punch as in education, but in multiple subjects. Now, let's say that one of those assessments or some of those assessments reveal that a student has fallen behind. Uh, the other part of Mr. Martinez's question is, are there specific programs in place this year to catch them up, to accelerate them in Denver Public Schools? Uh, there are. So let's uh, look at the year that is, Right. And this can be seen as controversial because I'm not saying that we're taking away vacations, that we're extending the learning day. All I'm saying is all on the menu. It's on the slate of possibilities. So we're talking everything that goes along with an extended program if needed. Pre-school, meaning uh, before the school day starts, after school. And those uh, recesses that we have, it's all in play, um, especially the summer once we really have a, a pulse. Uh, the way I see it is we've had an interruption to our normal way of instructing and learning as a student for 18 plus months. To think that we're going to bounce back in a year, I think is unreasonable, considering not only is it interrupted to the academic progress, but the social, emotional, and mental well-being that goes along with it. That's step one, right? So I, I think that we have to at least honor the same time that we had in terms of our interruption. So that's a year and a half before I can feel comfortable saying, Ryan, here's what we're going to achieve by the end of the year. I'm in no position to have end goals that are measurable without having a pulse at this moment. Okay, so the, the assessment is part of that pulse. And then I hear you saying that the tools for those who have fallen behind might be to extend the school day, might be to add school days, and to rely on summer school for the coming summer. Those are all tools that you may use. Correct. All right. Uh, that, of course, costs money because you have to keep buildings open and staff there, uh, which makes me think of the American Rescue Plan. The Biden administration announced that in March, $81 billion to support states in their efforts to, quote, get students back in the classroom safely for in-person learning, to keep schools open and address the academic, social and, as you say, emotional and mental health needs of students. 
Uh, Denver's getting about $210 million from the American Rescue Plan. Is that what will pay for those additional hours? absolutely. So the team here uh, really collaborated in an incredible way, operations, academics, and our schools division. And I can just visualize the pie chart that was presented to me on my onboarding, in which there was a tremendous amount of the pie, if you will, a nice slice that went into the, no, the capital upgrades, the operational, everything that is HVAC and ventilation, as you mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. But a sizable chunk went into our academic program and our schools division, in which we have the flexibility to extend the school year, but also compensate in terms of uh, human resource but also any other resources that we need uh, in terms of developing curricula or designing individualized learning plans. So that's a funding source. And no, we have that for several years. So it should provide the appropriate amount of resources we need as we, again, I'm putting this loosely, bounce back. And I say bounce back because uh, my prediction is that there's going to be a tremendous need of bouncing back across the board, but to be determined in terms of where we all are. About three quarters of DPS students are of color, with a third English language learners. And while the numbers have improved over the last four years or so, there's still an achievement gap between students of color and their white counterparts. Other cities have incorporated the idea of high-quality seats, a strategy designed to address gaps like that. Are, Are you in favor of those, or are there other initiatives that you'd prefer? Well, I'm in favor of really seeing and implementing the resolutions and the consent decrees that exist in DPS. In my travels and my research, I have uh, yet to come across a district that has taken the approach that DPS has, you know, a resolution that speaks to Black excellence, that we have that resolution and looking forward to supporting those. Similarly, when it comes to the consent decree, no, it's written doctrine as far as I'm concerned, right? We have a duty, right, or else. So those are the two approaches that I want to continue here because it was slightly interrupted in terms of the consent decree. The Black Excellence Plan is going into its second year, and I'm looking forward to using those two strategies that are DPS-owned to really close that opportunity gap that you mentioned. Let's just say for the uninitiated, the Denver School Board passed a Black Excellence Resolution in 2019 specifically to improve how it serves Black students. And then that consent decree dates back to what, I think, 2012 and has to do with uh, second language learners, correct? That is correct. Thank you. That has the involvement, obviously, of courts. Classrooms across the country have also become a focal point of conversation, Superintendent, regarding social and racial justice. Critical race theory is one highly debated example. In March, we spoke with a quartet of Denver students who brought Black History 365, an interactive curriculum designed to present a fuller historical picture of the African-American experience. And this is one of those students, Janelle Nonga. For all of us, one goal that we all really have is being able to really bring out the truth because um, when it comes to our history, the truth is not told. And there's actually a lot of lies and misconceptions that come along with our history. What role do you see efforts like Black History 365 playing in DPS? Well, aside from the Black uh, Excellence Resolution, uh, we also adopted the Black Lives Matter curriculum in DPS. And you mentioned critical race theory, and I heard our young scholar. Our approach and what we remain committed to is providing a culturally responsive education 
as well as fostering, cultivating, and preserving a culture of inclusion and belonging. So I think we have to really see that through, where our students in that case, and families and team members are safe and welcome. So it's, uh, it's less about the academic concept that comes along with the critical race theory and uh, such curricula that's focused on racism. Um, I think it needs to really be embedded in the practice. So it's less about the politics and what is, I guess, popular uh, across the nation. And it's more about doing the work, right? So if we have a resolution and a curriculum that has been adopted, that's the approach that we're going to take. And it's all inclusive. So I, I have absolute confidence that it's going to meet the needs of that young scholar and everybody else. Will you say just a few words about the BLM curriculum and how you see that as being separate from politics? Well, it it was designed by teachers, right? So it's less about being responsive. It's more about what happened internally on our equity and excellence division. So I don't think it was in response to, it's not something, no, you don't build curricula overnight. So this is the work that's been happening uh, for years here in DPS. So that's the approach. The approach is that it's teacher-created and teacher-driven. You were hired last month. The Board of Education confirmed you six to one. The lone dissenter was Barbara O'Brien, who expressed concerns about your coming to Denver from New Rochelle, New York, where you served as an acting and interim superintendent. New Rochelle serves about 11,000 students. DPS has more than 90,000. And after the vote, O'Brien said, the learning curve you'll face represents a complicated environment. What's your response? Uh, she's absolutely correct, right? As soon as we make our leaps and bounds, systems are very different. Education is the same, right, in terms of uh, you know, what we expect in terms of concepts and structure uh, for the most part. Uh, but in every shift that I've made, it's been a tremendous learning curve. So she's absolutely right. In terms of preparation, I cut my teeth in the largest school district in the entire nation. And I think folks uh, know, have skipped over that. Uh, and that's the New York City Department of Education. We're talking 1.2 million students. And upon my entry, uh, my, my exit, I should say, I was uh, no, really heading the Bronx, which had way more than 93,000 students. We're talking, you know, 200, 300,000. But it's not about numbers. It's about systems. So, no, Director O'Brien is absolutely correct. What I can say is that this month has been an incredible honeymoon, but I'm calling it a honeymoon um, in terms of interacting with uh, folks in the community. So it's less about the size because it's really a systems approach. And in terms of the learning curve, culturally, 100 percent. But I've engaged with our Mexican and Chicano and, and black communities, those who also had uh, similar points. And I, I think the reception has been incredibly great. And I, I would say that's not an overstatement. Before we go, um, I just want to note that just before your departure from New York, you were named in a federal lawsuit that was filed by the former medical director. This was over the New Rochelle District's response to COVID-19. Uh, the district has denied the allegations made. Where does that lawsuit stand and, and what sort of disconnect do you think led it to being filed? Right. So where does it stand? I do not know, because uh, interesting enough, two months removed from, I guess, when it became public, I have yet to be served, right? So I find that incredibly interesting, Ryan, right? So, and interesting enough, it came right after the big announcement in terms of the press conference. So that just, uh, if uh, please read into it, because I know I am, I'm easy to find. In New York, I was there for one month. No one came to the district. And here I am in DPS for a month. And similarly, no action. So I have to acknowledge that it exists because I guess uh, it's out in public. 
in terms of a disconnect for uh, and also the one in question she's not former she's still the current right if she's on leave if I'm, if I'm not mistaken uh so she's still active employee so i can't comment what i can say is that that's not the first and it won't be the last so dps community members please know when you see my name listed understand that i'm simply the head of agency meaning if someone has an issue whether it's a disgruntled employee or in their eyes a legitimate issue there's a laundry list of folks who are attacked but one person is always named that's the head of agency so there's nothing more to comment uh, i'm looking forward to seeing if it actually is a true lawsuit because at this moment aside from some press that's covered it i have no connection to it or involvement at this moment do you think that new rochelle handled the pandemic well or well, I think that we did an exemplary uh, job. Uh, to be quite honest, I think that's part of the reason why I am here. And I think uh, Dr. Marrero, who was, uh, you know, an East Coast name and a New York name, became a national name because we led the charge when it came to the pandemic and the COVID response. To say I'm proud of it is an understatement. I, uh, we were the first district that was closed by a government agency. We were the epicenter. Uh, we had the first confirmed case. And we were the first ones to really engage our professionals, our medical directors externally, commissioners of education and commissioners of public health to engage in our safe reentry. And although, right, we, it was difficult decisions, it was well-informed and we led the charge. No, our neural shell led the charge and as a result, others followed suit. Unfortunately, there's always some individuals who feel like that's not the case, but the, the proof is in the pudding and the results are in the results. Superintendent, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you all in person. And uh, feedback is always welcome because, again, we make informed decisions here in DPS. Alex Morero is the new superintendent for Denver Public Schools. Classes starts August 23rd. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with questions about quarterbacks and team ownership as the Denver Broncos training camp gets underway. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Mount Evans Highway, the highest paved road in North America, almost 100 years old, and it's hurt the delicate tundra around it. People come up here for the ecosystems. People come up here for the flowers. So if we start eliminating species from this landscape, the flower show is going to start to get less interesting for us. A new report recommends tearing out the existing road and building a new one. Fixing the Mount Evans Highway. Hear the story and see pictures at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Denver Broncos open training camp today, and unlike last year, there are fans in the stands at Dove Valley. But any fanfare is tempered as uncertainty for the franchise reigns on and off the field. Ryan Harris is the former offensive tackle for the team and now co-hosts a show on Altitude Sports Radio. Ryan, welcome back. Great to talk to you again, Ron. Thanks for having me. I think the last time we had you on about two years ago, uh, not much has changed since, unfortunately for the Broncos. Uh, the team is not only 
uh, not made the playoffs, but has had losing records in each of the last four seasons. This from an organization that was arguably the gold standard, winning the Super Bowl as recently as 16. Um, as someone who was on that team, are, are you saddened? Are you befuddled? Well, you know, Ryan, like many professions, every ingredient matters. And there are some key ingredients the Broncos have been missing for some years. You need a great quarterback, not a good one, a great one, just like you need a great leader, a great radio host, right? Uh, There's a difference between good and great. Uh, Additionally, you need health. And one of the things that's been overlooked with the Broncos is the amount of injuries that they've sustained, specifically the last two years. Vic Fangio has only had Bradley Chubb and Vaughn Miller in four games of the of the 28 games that he has coached, the 32 games he has coached here in Denver. So that's a that's a problem. And that goes all the way from how are you training to how are you maintaining the health of your athletes to the athletes you actually have performing. And then what would you say about how ownership and the question that surrounds that affects things on the field? Well, anybody in a workplace without a CEO knows how difficult it is to, to get a, a meeting started on time, right? What matters? What doesn't matter? And one of the things I learned, one of the many things I learned from Mr. Bolin was that hard work pays off. I mean, he would every day be in the weight room when we went in as Denver Broncos, you know, climbing 99 flights of stairs every day, even though he didn't have to, but that's the message he sent. He made sure that we had the best care the best equipment, the best facilities, the best travel out of any NFL team. And those things do matter. At the end of the day, the Broncos have been missing that one person who can say with with no consequences what they want done. And that can be everything from, hey, we I want Von Miller to be a Bronco for life. You make it happen. Well, now it doesn't matter what the GM thinks because the, the owner just told them what to do. Hey, we're not going to do things this way. They don't have anybody to give that direction. And I know from being in a huddle with Peyton Manning and other great quarterbacks in the NFL, when you are on a team, you need one clear established leader. And the Broncos have not had that for some time now. So much to unpack here. First of all, Mr. Bolin is Pat Bolin, of course. Uh, The longtime Broncos owner died in 2019. He'd been suffering from dementia for a few years prior and uh, wasn't really involved in day-to-day operations. Um, Since Bolin's death, indeed, there have been questions about ownership. Broncos president and CEO Joe Ellis said Tuesday that the trust that runs the franchise will begin a transition in early 2022, and that a new owner will be in place by the start of next season. Now, that could be one of Bolin's daughters, Brittany, who's currently vice president of strategic initiatives, or I suppose the team could be sold to a, I don't know, like a Jeff Bezos type. What, what would you like to see? Well, I think it's interesting, Ryan, that Phil Anschutz, Colorado billionaire, sold 25% of his stake in the Lakers for a cash out of about $1.5 billion. Uh, that's something to watch as oh. that, that happened just about a week before uh, there was a settlement in the in the lawsuit between the Bolin sisters. Uh, you know, of course, I'm a big fan of Brittany Bolin, Notre Dame graduate. Uh, so she, she, I'm no doubt, it would be the best owner. But the important thing for the players on the team, for the staff who are looking for long-time stability in the workplace, is that they do have someone at the helm that can direct the ship and and create a culture that is for whatever it wants to be known for. You know, uh, Pat Bolin always wanted us to be number one in everything as players. 
And so that sets the that sets the bar for coaches, for for the people who are cooks and equipment people. And we, and without that, the Broncos really are going to struggle to make it to the Super Bowl, let alone make it to the playoffs in, until that's fixed. I want to be crystal clear on what you might be suggesting there about Mr. Anschutz. Are you are you saying he he might uh, be trying to get liquid for some other sort of purchase? <laughs> I think that it's interesting that anyone would sell part of the Lakers while LeBron James is there, especially <laughs> before the new Space Jam 2 movie. And then when you look at the timing of a week later, the course of case hap- happening, I would uh, settling. I really, I really believe that uh, either the Bullens will be adding an owner uh, like a Phil Anschutz or someone like that, based on what I've seen and, and the, the things I've heard from people close to the situation. All right. You mentioned the long string of injuries, but you also mentioned quarterbacks. And that's uh, what I'd like to focus on next. Um, After the stability of of Elway and Manning, Denver has had a different starting quarterback in its opener for the last four seasons. Overall, nine different players have started games in that time. That streak could end if Drew Locke wins the job over Teddy Bridgewater. Bridgewater considered a steady, if unspectacular, player, while Luck is full of swagger, but has also been inconsistent. Want to weigh in on this? Who do you think is right for the job? Well, the the great thing is for the first time in five years, there's actually been competition in the quarterback's room. I mean, Drew Locke has not competed against somebody since his freshman year in college. That's rare in the NFL. I mean, there are five quarterbacks who didn't have competition and all five of them are Super Bowl champions, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady. You know, how does Drew Locke fit in that group? So finally, they brought in some competition. Teddy Bridgewater, a former pro bowler, someone who has played in the playoffs recently. I believe Teddy Bridgewater is far more capable than, than people want to give him credit for. Uh, and you, you mentioned somebody who may be unspectacular and unassuming. I mean, that's the very same thing they said about Peyton Manning when we went and won a Super Bowl. So. Huh. It's fun. It's funny to see um, the many things people do think do matter. But as a player, I know that that competition matters most and that experience at that quarterback position brings excellence. And Teddy Bridgewater has been in both of those situations. And that's a new situation for Drew Locke. It's a very diplomatic answer. Ryan, <laughs> you, you, you want some? You want some cut? You want some quick cuts? Is that what we're looking for? Oh, uh, I believe sure. Teddy, I believe Teddy Bridgewater will be the starting quarterback week one. His arm strength, his talent. A lot of people will look at his stats from last year, but he was missing Colorado great Christian McCaffrey, which was seventy percent of the offense. Christian McCaffrey, of course, rushed for a thousand and received a thousand yards two seasons prior. Uh, so he will be with great weapons in Cortland Sutton, uh, Noah Fant, and others. I believe Teddy Bridgewater will be the starting quarterback week one. How about that, Ryan? I appreciate that. Thank you, <laughs> Ryan. Um, there was a name that was passed around a lot during the offseason in terms of quarterbacks, uh, someone who is, I suppose, spectacular and steady, Aaron Rodgers <laughs> of the Green Bay Packers. He was at one point rumored to be available with Denver often cited as a likely landing spot. It didn't happen. And it appears Rodgers has worked out his differences with Green Bay and will remain there, at least for this season. But things can change quickly in the NFL. So should should the Broncos keep their eyes and ears open or embrace the status quo? Well, I, I congratulate the Broncos because they were in the conversation early on. Uh, you know, sources I have in Green Bay tell me that 
the front office asked for a price for Aaron Rodgers. They then got that price. They were surprised for that in the draft picks and the players. And then they decided uh, to not to call Aaron Rodgers bluff. And they did. And Aaron Rodgers is in camp. But Broncos fans have no fear. There's a great chance Aaron Rodgers will be here next season. Speaking of quarterbacks, I want to play a clip from before the Broncos faced the New Orleans Saints last year at home. I mean, I tell you what, you want to talk about drama. <laughs> we got that, it for you today, that right? That kid right there has got to be, I mean, the butterflies in that kid's stomach right now. So that was the pregame introduction to Kendall Hinton, a wide receiver forced to switch positions that day because Locke and the Broncos' other quarterbacks were unable to play after being placed in the NFL's COVID-19 protocols. Months mm-hmm. later, the league is still figuring things out on that front. There's been a lot of news. Teams that have an outbreak and are unable to reschedule as a result will forfeit that game. In addition, players on both teams will not be paid for the lost game, and the team responsible for the cancellation due to unvaccinated players will cover financial losses and be subject to potential discipline from the commissioner's office. The league says that 85% of players have received at least one shot of a vaccine, and 14 of the 32 teams have vaccination rates over 90%, uh, but there still have been some high-profile exceptions. Ryan, can you take us inside the locker room and like tell us how this might play out among players? Well, this is an age-appropriate program, so I'll use uh, <laughs> illustrative language. But, you know, it, it, there are two things happening here. One, an NFL locker room might be the most honest place on earth. If, if you and I have a problem, Ryan, I'm going to explain that to you in, in no uncertain terms, and you're going to respond. And one of the things that has heightened this situation is that you know, it's one thing if you and I make a different choice for different reasons. It's a whole nother thing if your choice affects my money. And what we're talking about here hmm. is that 60% of a player of players on an NFL roster have play bonuses, right? 40% of plays, 60% of plays, consecutive starts. If these things get interrupted in addition to the paycheck, well, now you're talking about losing, you know, anywhere from, you know, 25000 to $500,000 in just one day because one teammate made a decision. The NFL is really placing pressure on the NFLPA to get players vaccinated, and this is how they're trying to do it. Secondly, though, what's shocking to me, Ryan, is how inconsistent it is that players are not vaccinated. You have to have a tuberculosis vaccination to play in the NFL. You have to have a tetanus shot to play in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Every team I was on every year had 100% participation in uh, the flu shot, right? There is things like Tordal that many players take before every game and players will still take, which has proven to ruin your kidneys and liver. Uh, and I can hear people already saying, well, those things are FDA approved. Okay, well, how about the every single protein shake, supplement and vitamin that is not FDA approved that players take? So there is a lot of inconsistencies on the player side. And in an NFL locker room, things are very honest. And if this continues and the NFL and NFLPA do not find a new agreement, you're going to see some very heated press conferences whenever this do- whenever a game does get canceled and game checks get taken away because of the play- player bonuses as well as the game checks. Well, I suppose there's taking financial incentives away and then there's like financial incentives you could offer. Uh, I think it's right. Cole Beasley of Buffalo, who's been anti-vaccine, but says he might change his mind if he's compensated for it. What do you think about that? 
You know, that's inconsistent to me then, right? What, what are you, are you looking for attention? Are you, are you endorsing something? Um, and if I'm a teammate, I'm having that conversation. You know, one of the things I, I do miss of the NFL is there, there is nothing off topic. If we have a conflict, we're going to approach it. And so at breakfast, after hearing that, you know, I'm going to say to him, how is it that you'll take money to do something, but when your teammates want you to do something for the betterment of the playoff bound Buffalo Bills, you're unwilling to do that. And that's a very tough car. And he's not going to be able to go anywhere because we're at the same breakfast table. We're going to be at practice. I can ask him again if he tries to walk away. And so that's why this is a tough situation in NFL locker rooms because of the honesty and because of approaching conflicts, you can move past it as a practice in the NFL. I've got to say, it would make a great podcast to just record the conversations in the NFL locker rooms and then just like, <laughs> just like play it with, you know, beeped, bleeped. Oh, oh, there'd be a lot of bleeps. There'd be a lot of bleeps. And you'd hear things you don't understand. You know, my rookie year, I I heard a a teammate say, I took the Lambo to the yacht for a sunset cruise. And I didn't know what any of those things meant. And I had to go and Google them. And a Lambo is a Lamborghini. And and I now know what a yacht is and a sunset cruise. So uh, you learn a lot in an NFL locker room pretty quick. Uh, About life on and off the field, apparently. Well, I look forward (laughs) to speaking with you again, Ryan Harris, maybe Uh, with better news for the Broncos. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Ryan. Former Denver Broncos offensive tackle and Altitude Sports Radio host Ryan Harris. Training camp opened this morning. The first preseason game is August 14th, with the regular season starting September 12th. Okay, from pro football to Major League Baseball now, and the economic impact of that recent All-Stars game. CPR, CPR's Sarah Mulholland spoke with a few business owners who are going over their receipts. There's no doubt the All-Star Game brought many thousands of people to the area around Coors Field. They were eating and drinking and browsing at stores. But some businesses say it didn't quite live up to three months of hype. Overall, it was, you know, better than most weekends. But to the extent that everyone kind of was hoping, um, it wasn't really there. That's Eric Riggs. He owns Fresh Craft, a craft beer and restaurant. It's about a 10-minute walk from Coors Field. He says he saw the most business during the weekend leading up to the game. But it was pretty quiet once the home run derby started on Monday. Jackson's is directly across from Coors Field. It's known as a place where Rockies fans go to pregame. Service manager Andrew Herber says he saw the most business on Monday and Tuesday when the events at the ballpark got into high gear. Even then, though, it wasn't as busy as he expected. I thought it was going to be a little more like opening day which wasn't the case, uh, but it was still a very good turnout. State and city officials were ecstatic when Major League Baseball decided to move the game to Denver in April. Some economists estimated that the game could mean as much as $100 million in economic impact. It was a big coming out party for the city after more than a year of crushing pandemic restrictions. The city says it won't be able to quantify the direct benefit to downtown businesses until August or September when sales tax receipts come in. Megan Steele is a bartender at the Giggling Grizzly, another drinking spot across from Coors Field. I talked to her on the day of the All-Star Game. We thought it was going to be, like, packed from 11 a.m. on, and it's been, like, a slow burn. Steele has a theory as to why the bars in the area weren't as crowded as many were expecting. What we realized is the people that were going to this all-star game were like really dedicated baseball fans that wanted to be there to see the players, to be part of 
that more so than the drinking before or after. She's optimistic local baseball fans will keep the bar humming for the rest of the summer. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. All that's left now of the once bustling town of Deerfield is a few empty houses along a dusty road east of Greeley. But people committed to Deerfield's history as one of Colorado's historic black settlements hope to preserve and restore the ghost town. CPR's Benta Berkland takes us there. The town was founded in 1910 by businessman Oliver Toussaint Jackson, who had big ideas for the area. O.T. Jackson wanted to set up a sanatorium for TB. Some of the sanatoriums out here would not accept blacks. Professor George June teaches Africana studies at the University of Northern Colorado. So he wanted to set up the sanatorium so people from all over could come out here. He wanted to set up an educational institution. The university and sanatorium never happened. But at its peak during World War I, it was a thriving community of black families. Deerfield had two churches, a restaurant, a dance hall, and 300 residents. People grew strawberries and cantaloupes and melons and had livestock. June says even though Deerfield was a black settlement, in many ways life was more integrated on the eastern plains than in some other parts of the country. Because the black people and the white people out here in this farming area, they had to get along with each other and they depended on each other. Because they interacted, they danced on the same dance floor, they had baseball teams. Black kids from here would go to the uh, white schools in the area sometimes after the schools here closed down. But Deerfield's heyday was relatively short-lived. The Dust Bowl came in and pretty much wiped out any farming community all the way over into Kansas. And then you had the Dust Bowl sending people from Oklahoma to California. So it was a whole regional thing that destroyed every community. So this is in really good shape. This has been preserved. This is the outside of the Jackson House. This was attached. That's University of Northern Colorado anthropology professor Robert Brunswick. He's giving lawmakers and county officials a tour of Jackson's home. They stand in a dusty bare room with wooden floors and wooden walls. I think this is the living room and that was the bedroom for the Jacksons when they were living in the house. And then the kitchen was on the other side. You can see the... The home uh, of Deerfield's founder is in fairly good shape because the state set aside money for it nearly 20 years ago. Now, renewed efforts are underway to restore and replicate the interior and raise funds to build an information center and rebuild two other structures. The Black American West Museum owns the land and buildings. Daphne Rice Allen chairs the museum's board. She says preserving this settlement is an important part of the history of migration in the West. It's a value to Greeley, this is a value to Weld County, this is a value to the state of Colorado, and it's just important to not let this information just kind of go by the wayside. Democratic Senator James Coleman came on the tour. He grew up in Denver but says he only knew generally about the settlement. He thinks the lessons here about growth and opportunity for the black community still apply today. And he says he'd love to someday see busloads of schoolchildren visit on field trips. And for them to be able to come and see a man who lived in the same community as they did and said, I want to, I want to build a settlement for black community to be able to have and to see that it's not just around the country, but right here in Colorado in their own home, that this has already been done. 
that we could do more of the same. The renewed push to further preserve Deerfield is part of greater efforts nationwide to take care of landmarks linked to black history. History Colorado has received funding to place Deerfield on a national African-American heritage trail. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Elsewhere in the West, the second largest reservoir in the U.S. dropped to its lowest level on record this past weekend. Lake Powell sits on the Utah-Arizona border. It provides water and power to millions of Westerners. CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis broke down why this matters to Colorado with our colleague Haley Sanchez. Why are Colorado water managers concerned about the lack of water in Lake Powell? Lake Powell is filled with Colorado River water, and this reservoir was actually built as a storage bucket to help states in the upper Colorado River Basin, that's Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, send enough water downstream to the lower basin, including Mexico, Arizona, California, and Nevada. A 100-year-old water-sharing agreement called the Colorado River Compact dictates how much water must be sent to the lower basin. Powell's shrinking water supply could make it more challenging for Colorado and those other upper basin states to meet their obligations. Colorado Water Conservation Board Director Becky Mitchell spoke about the historic moment at a recent board meeting. This is an incredibly serious time for all of us. We have a responsibility within the state of Colorado to protect all types of users of the Colorado River water. I know Glen Canyon Dam, which creates Lake Powell, needs a certain amount of water to keep creating hydropower. Why is that a concern? The power created by a Glen Canyon Dam is used by millions in seven states, including Colorado. In 2019, the Colorado River Basin states agreed on a plan to keep the dam's turbines spinning if there was a drought, like there is now. The agreement is if Powell is projected to drop to a level that could jeopardize that hydroelectric power, water from specific reservoirs in Colorado and other upper basin states will be sent to Powell to try and keep it from hitting that point. But that's already happening, right? It is, and it's the first time it's happened. The Bureau of Reclamation started these emergency water releases last month after it was projected that Powell will drop below the critical threshold of 3,525 feet by next year. Water from Blue Mesa Reservoir in southwest Colorado will be released to Lake Powell starting in August, which will mean an eight-foot drop in water in Blue Mesa. I spoke with Director Mitchell about what this means for Colorado. These are unprecedented times, and they call for unprecedented measures. The reservoir is not going to be drained entirely, but it is expected to end this year at a record low, and that's going to be tough. It's going to definitely be a visible note of where we are at. Why isn't there just more water in Lake Powell? There are a lot of different reasons, but climate change-driven drought is playing a role. The western United States, including the west slope of Colorado, is currently in one of the worst droughts on record. But some parts of the southwest have been in a drought for the last 20 years. Scientists are calling this a mega-drought, which are periods of dryness that can last decades. The last mega-drought was in the late 1500s. Climate change accounts for about half of the current drought severity. So warmer temperatures mean drier soils, which absorb more water when snow melts or when it rains. And more water evaporates into the air. And that can be a big issue for reservoirs like Lake Powell, where a significant amount of water can be lost from evaporation. Could more water be sent from Blue Mesa Reservoir to Lake Powell? Director Mitchell says that's a big concern, that the Bureau of Reclamation could decide that more water from Blue Mesa needs to go to Powell. 
Right now, Blue Mesa sits at less than half full. The reservoir was built so Colorado could store water, like a savings account, to again make sure it has enough water to send downstream to the lower basin states. So if that water is being spent now, it means Colorado doesn't have as much saved in the bank for future droughts. That water is also important for agriculture and municipal use. That is CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis speaking with my colleague Haley Sanchez. Get a deeper look at the effect of drought on the Colorado River at CPR.org. And tomorrow, we'll delve further into the impact record heat has on agriculture, health, and life in general. Colorado Matters and CPR News present a Climate One special, Extreme Heat, at 9 Thursday morning and again that evening at 7. And thanks for joining us. With thanks as well to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.